you know, so we talk about having innovative treatments, but we rarely talk about how to make sure that the innovative treatment gets the people and is acceptable to the people who need it most. And so citywide case management is about providing the human relationship that allows a patient to first of all accept the treatment and then continue the treatment and think about move towards their recovery. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. Coming from a family who are not afraid to plan big ideas and embracing risk-taking to achieve them, Dr. Fumi Mitsuishi has devoted her career to understanding the humane aspect of clinical psychiatry. Her rich experiences living in Japan France and the U.S. have fostered a deep appreciation for residing at the crossroads of diverse culture and understanding the experience of otherness. As the director of Citywide Case Management, a division of the UCSF Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, Department of Psychiatry, where she's also an associate clinical professor, Dr. Mitsuishi strives to enhance the path to recovery for adults navigating mental health challenges. Her focus remains on empowering them to secure stable housing, treatment, and employment, facilitating their successful reintegration into society. In this episode, Dr. Mitsuishi discusses the prevalent misconceptions and stigmatization surrounding homelessness and individuals coping with mental health challenges and offers a refreshing perspective towards the importance of using a multidisciplinary approach to improve and honor the client's quality of life. Here's our conversation. Well, thanks for joining me this morning, Fumi. It's so nice to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. I'm so excited. I was very inspired with uh, what you said during our uh, symposium this year. And I was very impressed with a lot of the work that you're doing. And I'm also curious about the work that you do. And I can't wait to share that with our listener today. But before we start, I'd like to always start with your background journey. What take you to the path that this is the career or the work that you wanted to do? Yeah, yeah. So, um, I, I, so the the story starts with uh, essentially being born in Japan to parents who are very socially engaged, and um, at you know, when I was four, they decided to go to to France to pursue their dreams. Um, and for my dad, it meant uh, leaving behind his uh, degree, his PhD in chemistry. He was studying some arcane chemical kind of reaction sort of thing. And then he left that behind because he felt like that was too connected to um, sort of like, uh, polluting the world, you know, and he decided to shift his focus to the philosophy of science to try to understand how it is that science seeks progress, but maybe undermine, uh, sort of our well-being through climate change and different things like that. So I come from a, a line of people who have big ideas and who are risk takers and who show up at some space and claim, Hey, I want to do this thing and I'm going to try to do it. Um, 
so after that, I, I spent about 10 years growing up in France. It was a small town of Strasbourg. And then my mom got a job at UCLA and sh she was doing research in immunogenetics. And that's when I followed suit and I started to, I, I started my life in the United States. Um, I grew up going to public schools, so I, I'm not an international school person. And every time I had to essentially shift uh, languages and and sort of like the culture and and sort of like knowing that there are a lot of people, myself included, or so I felt in the moment, who have to navigate things, right? Who are not always comfortable and who are not part of this larger narrative of how things are lived. And that was the, that was probably the most important experience to teach me that there's just different ways of being and everybody has their own struggles and, and we also learn how to survive and hopefully thrive. Uh, I feel really lucky for what I've had, uh, and also the challenges that I've had. And, uh, I went to college, studied art history and neuroscience, right? <laughs> Got to do different things. Um, and ended up studying the raft of the Medusa, which is a big painting by Jericho uh, in uh, uh, in the eighteenth century, uh, 19th century. And it's this first very beautiful romantic painting, but it portrays the betrayal of these people who were sailing in the coast of Senegal. And it has like themes of colonialism, but also of loss of mind. This raft was left behind. It was not rescued. And people actually turned to cannibalism, you know, to survive. And there was, a, as if you look at the painting, under the mask, there's a man seated with his head in his hand, um, essentially uh, describing the sort of the loss of rationality and mental health that occurred on that raft. And then later on, Jericho went on to paint these really haunting images of the portraits of the insane. And this was coincided with the beginning of uh, psychiatry uh, as, as, a, as a part of medical science, you know. And Jericho himself was treated by the father of psychiatry in France. And so I studied all of that. So I became very interested in the mind. And of course, I was sort of studying neuroscience and it, it was kind of all linking together, you know, in the perfect way. And um, after, after um, college, I worked uh, on a research study helping folks who are homeless and who struggled with heroin addiction. And so that was my first entry into this space, right? Um, of course, medical school followed and my passion to sort of like think about how is it that medicine can link um, the human experience, um, understanding that an image can be a lot, you know, it's representation, but it's also uh, it, it shows about what is internal to a human being um, and, and, and the reality of society uh, with inequalities, all of that sort of came together in the job that I currently have. And so I feel really fortunate to be able to do what I do, uh, to be able to, as a psychiatrist, spend time with people. Um, and, and again, uh, not focus so much on what's visible on the surface, but really about their stories, about who they are, why they came to be, why they, what they believe and what helps them move forward, you know, those kinds of things. What is their meaning and purpose? Having Being able to elucidate and have a sense of who they are in that way is the most 
sort of soul feeding thing for me. Uh, it also links me to the sense of humanity and compassion, which I think all of us are craving to do in some ways. And so I feel really fortunate. Yeah. And I think allow you to have that deep connection too, when you have that conversation that beyond just what you see on the outside, I think oftentimes that's missing. Yeah. Yeah. And also knowing that we are in that conversation we are positioning ourselves, right? Like we are the unique individual having that conversation. And that is something that is often looked in medicine as non-existent, as if a medical provider is an objective being, but we all bring ourselves and we have to be very clear on that. Uh, and that, that is that to me is very uh, beautiful, important, and uh, but also something that you have to watch out for, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, it's interesting lately that you hear a lot of story people talking about physician burnout. Everybody seems to only don't have much time with their uh, patient. That How could you get that kind of uh, connection or trust when you only spend two minutes with a person? I agree. I think that's, and I'm again, very glad that I don't live in, a world that's quite like that, mm-hmm. um, that I, I have the privilege of getting to really spend time with my patients, um, and also be able to think about them in a, in a more slightly more expensive way than we're usually oftentimes afforded in, in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, and by expensive, I mean that I'm not just thinking about which, you know, anti-psychotic medicine I'm prescribing to somebody. And I'm really thinking about their social circumstance, you know, all the things that, that you know, ultimately will guide their recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that, that that's, to me, is very rich. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think this is a good segue to share with us a little bit about your work now at Citywide. Yeah. So citywide case management is uh, essentially, a we call it a clinic, but it's really a division of Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at UCSF, um, University of California, San Francisco. And the organization has been around for almost 40 years at this point. And it's, it's a, it was, it's, the purpose of it was to really respond to deinstitutionalization, so that is the what happened when mental health asylums, state hospitals is another way we call them, started to close down. And this is a, something that happened specifically and most dramatically in California. And you know, this was guided with the the thought that by closing this hospital down and sort of giving energy to a network of community clinics, uh, it would be the least restrictive thing, you know, condition for people with serious mental illness to live in the community, be supported by their community and so on and so forth. Right. Um, and so the idea, there was an idealism behind it, but the reality is that the folks who left the institutions didn't really have the natural supports and didn't really have the resources, both external and internal, to be able to survive in the community, to really do well in the community. I want to give an example of what we need internally in order to survive and do well, right? We need to know how to organize and plan ourselves. 
We need to delay gratification, right? We need to be able to sustain frustration tolerance so that, you know, when something doesn't go the way we want it to go, we need to be able to tolerate that and move on to the next thing and plan out the next strategy, right? It takes a lot of skills to do that. It turns out that human beings need loving, supportive, consistent environments to really build those skill sets. And I think that a lot of people who suffer from serious mental illness, which is often compounded with being, um, you know, from more poor communities and uh, not having the kinds of supports and assets, maybe being involved to, in additional institutionalization, such as the criminal justice system, et cetera, right? It, it, it really makes it very hard to have that holding environment. We know that as a fact. There is something, there are these systemic issues that uh, sort of undermine the, the sort of like uh, the, 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 the holding environment that we need people to have in order to grow up well, you know? And I think for people with serious mental illness, that is often the case. And because they have serious mental illness, they also have an additional reason why they they can't rise the way most of us uh, do. And so what Citywide Case Management has done since its inception is to provide that holding environment, that holding relationship, really. And to say that, Healthcare is not going to address the social issues. We're going to do it. So you know how we talked about social determinants of health? Mm -hmm. And this is kind of a sort of like common to now talk about it. I think citywide and and organizations like citywide were really the first to start really implementing that, you know, systematically uh, before the the concept of social determinants was really hot, you know? Mm Um, and to say that, yes, you can offer somebody who is, who struggles with houselessness and has been so deeply stigmatized and, you know, has really intense, uh, experience, psychotic experience sometimes that, that make their sense of reality, uh, not match with most of our reality. You can tell them, Hey, take a medicine and you'll be better. But their ability to participate in that kind of care, to trust you enough to be able to take that medicine is new. You know, so we talk about having innovative treatments, but we rarely talk about how to make sure that the innovative treatment gets the people and is acceptable to the people who need it most. And so citywide case management is about providing the human relationship that allows a patient to, first of all, accept the treatment and then continue the treatment and think about, move towards their recovery. Mm -hmm. When you said human relationship, what does that mean? So it means that that when I meet a client for the first time, when my case managers, my social workers meets a client the first time, the client might say, nah, you represent the system. I'm not going to trust you. I don't even want to talk with you, right? Well, we're not going to take that no for an answer. And we're going to keep engaging the same person in different parts of the community, wherever they are, to make sure that they see us and they start to see us and we have this capacity to engage them in conversation and really listen to them so that they are willing to start telling us first their story, telling us what they want and need, 
and for us to honor that want and need, and then for them to then continue on their trust journey enough that we can start actually having conversations about what we think might be important in their life as well. And so it's honoring that person and thinking about the relationship that will then sustain the therapeutic uh, process, right? So that's what what I mean about relationship. Um, and that sounds arduous, right? But I think as a society, we, we can't afford to just sort of reject people that have been always rejected. I, I, I certainly think that this is, I hope this is a country that sees that as a value. Living in the city, you see a lot of uh, people on the street that I'm sure ben- can benefit a lot from your yeah. work. And how can you reach out to as many people as you can in order to help them get better? I think there is a perceptual piece to what's going on in the streets of San Francisco, and there's a reality. I think we are um, on the heels of a pandemic that's really changed our communities and the way our town and city feels. And that is a, a, a sort of process of change and transition that San Francisco is very dramatically going through. And that so the emptying of our streets, for example, Market Street, is very notable, right? There's just a lot less people. And so I think the proportion of folks who look homeless or who may, you know, who look uh, unwell feels more significant. Um, and, and I do think that there is, there is a rising problem of uh, more people perhaps that are out on the streets and are looking more desperate. And there's this, a sense that it's, it's, it feels a lot more visible and present. I can't trust my own sense of what is reality other than to go by the numbers, right? Um, and so the, 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 when you look at the homeless count, it really hasn't changed. And so I think that there is a fair proportion to which this is a perceptual issue. But that doesn't mean it's okay, right? Like, I, I don't think that just by, I'm not, I'm not saying, oh, it's just a perception, forget about it. That's not at all what I'm saying. I think that there is, there is a larger societal problem that San Francisco is facing about with its street and the way it looks and a sense of responsibility about how we, how we make this community welcoming for everybody, right? Um, and uh, obviously a housing and a, honestly a huge income issue and a cost of living issue that's just significant in this environment, you know, in the entire Bay Area, really. Like most of us who have very nice incomes feel squeezed, right? I mean, this is the reality. And so for, for people in the community who feel very squeezed as is, who are, who are able to afford less, whose housing is more expensive and to see their, you know, their community feel less safe and feel less livable is hard. I think that is very hard. And that is not just a homelessness problem. I think that's a bigger problem. So, but to go back to this question of solutions, right? I think number one, we have to prevent folks falling into homelessness. Uh, the most, re- you know, this, this very seminal piece that just came out on the California's experience of homelessness out of the, uh, you know, the Benioff Center on Homelessness in UCSF is really an important piece that we really need to be looking at uh, and understanding. And the main piece that I understood from that is that people 
uh, become homeless very quickly at some point. There's a drop-off point. And then once they become homeless, and the, as the time extends of homelessness, it becomes harder and harder for them to uh, find housing, settle back in, and and uh, you know, kind of return to being part of uh, our community, our housed community. It's almost they say. I think I, I was listening to that. I was reading that article too. It's about homelessness is a becoming pre-existing condition that impact a lot of other things. I found that article was very fascinating. I think they're talking also about many people blame a lot about the drug use. But then I think they say when you're homeless, you want you want to stay up late because you don't feel safe. And then sometimes you refer to the drug and that's kind of how the drug addiction can also happen too. That's something new for me. Yeah, it's so common for, uh, you know, uh, a client of mine to use methamphetamines to stay awake at night so that they are not victimized. Um, and it, that is you know, being asleep on the street at night is, is a dangerous thing, uh, on many levels. So, uh, you know, we, I think we have a tendency maybe to, to imagine that if only you did this, right. And also, or, Oh, this is your responsibility. And that's a beautiful American idea, you know, that we have the, the, the capacity opportunity and, um, ability to rise ourselves up and to come up with an innovative solution for ourselves to just do this on our own. But the reality is that it's never on our own. That's not true. I think we're always supported by something. Uh, uh, and, and that's so important to understand that and to create a society in which we encourage people to have that, that sort of agency and capacity and optimism about themselves and also understand that we are standing on on the ground of something a, a long history of supports and connection and inspiration mm-hmm. right and 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 it's sort of like we can't do one without the other yeah i think it's very i mean i definitely experienced that i mean my story i was i was telling everybody when you surround yourself if you're lucky enough to have the right community you will thrive but not everybody's lucky enough to have that community. Yeah. And I definitely experienced it firsthand and give me, you know, truly understanding the importance of community. And I think uh, what you're trying to do with through the city, where I think provide that support for oftentimes people don't have that access to the community that can be helpful to them. Yeah, I, I imagine that's, that's sort of the, sort of the DNA of the Rosamond Institute, right? Like to right. to create that community and, and allow people to, to rise, you know, and shine and be their best selves. Yeah. yeah. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rudnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. One of the things that, you know, I think oftentimes when people see, people always assume, oh, you you look like that when you have mental health, but there's it's not always the case. Mm-hmm. And 
So tell us more about that, changing the story a bit about how we view mental health. Mm. So I think what you're saying is that we we tend to sort of collapse the idea of mental illness with homelessness. Um, I think I, I first want to say that homelessness happens because there's no housing. It's, it's, it's not because of mental illness. Mental illness is a condition that can uh, sort of make somebody more vulnerable to losing their housing, certainly, you know, and make, make it more difficult for them to then regain housing for sure. But houselessness, homelessness is a direct uh, result of not housing, not having adequate uh, housing. We have a tendency to collapse problems because we want it to be um, understandable and less complex. I think that any one of us, myself included, I would put myself first. If I had to sleep on the streets, I, I don't think that I would be mentally well. None of us would. Um, you know, just thinking about the fact that you are not able to take care of your hygiene. You don't have access to a bathroom. You know, what does it do for me as a woman to be out on the streets looking for a safe place to relieve myself and doing it in a way that fits my hygiene needs, Right. That's really hard to do. Even just the worrying of it, you know, is is something that would be preoccupying and difficult. At some point, that would fall off as something important to me, you know. And I would be thinking about things like, oh, my God, I need to find food. I, I mean, obviously, you can't cook things for yourself. You're feeding off of anything that's out on the streets or available in, in food pantries or like, you know, in mines that you can get food. And more than anything, you're thinking about, am I going to be safe? And oftentimes you're not, especially if you're a woman, but even if you're a man, right? I'm trying to hold on to the few things that still belong to me. And as human beings, we have a connection to things, you know? It, it's about our own value in society to have things. It's also practical, right, to have things. Um, and, and it's, it's also comforting to have things and your things get stolen all the time. Important things too, like your paperwork, your IDs and your, you know, like your birth certificates and things that allow you to then go back into society. Those things get lost all the time. If you're homeless, just imagine what that's like, you know, to live through that. And, and so, yes, it is hard to watch that as those of us who are housed and who are doing better. I think it's very hard to watch that. I don't, I don't want to undermine that fact. And it feels a little scary too, because sometimes when you are in those situations, you are deeply traumatized by what's going on and you are reactive and you are going to say things that may not be okay um, or act in ways that are not okay. It's incredibly sad I think also as somebody who's housed, watching somebody who's on the street, I think we are also saddened and ashamed when we see that. Ashamed of our inability to do something. Angry at society for letting this happen. It's a complicated feeling that we're dealing with. And so to sort of know that that's what's happening, that's what's guiding us in our thought when we see this, 
and to figure out how to then lead with compassion, I think is really important. And so you've seen a lot of um, clients through the city Y and share with us some of the case study that you've done, that you've seen, that, you know, somebody that you felt excited for them that you, you work with. Um, so Citywide is made up of multiple different teams. Each of them have a different place in the system of care. And it's designed to catch people at different phases. It, it, it's, it's part of the problem is that we don't have, we have a, such a siloed system of healthcare and social services that are not connected to each other. That's why you need a person to keep bringing our clients through the, through each of the needle hole. Right. (laughs) Um, So I'll tell you about a person that I'm going to call Mrs. P. She's, uh, she's a woman in her seventies and she would be coming into the emergency room all the time. Like we're talking about multiple times a week sometimes and just to kind of, you know, for our, our, our folks who are listening and who are not in the healthcare system, the emergency services are incredibly costly, right? And so there is a systems problem and a resource allocation problem with the fact that Mrs. B was not able to, you know, get connected to the right services and would be using the emergency services all the time. Um, we have a small part of our team that's located at the Psychiatric Emergency Services at ZSFG. And so that team started to engage this person at PES whenever she, Mrs. P would show up. And then made a referral to one of our team that sort of works with people who are very, very disengaged from the system of care. And that team, which is the assisted outpatient treatment team, um, then started to engage this Mrs. P every time they would show up to the emergency room because that's the only way to really get to to this person, right? Because it's really hard to find them in the community. Um, what we noticed is that she was struggling with a lot of cognitive challenges and active psychotic symptoms that, of course, when she was at PES, she would get medicated, but then she would leave the PES and then she would not be medicated, right? And of course, what as we got to know her, we understood that she was she experienced significant racism, the stressors of that, the, the sort of like the stacking of the stressors connected to that, and of course, just not having a lot of resources, and so leading to poverty. Um, and she deeply distrusted providers who had done things to her that she that were against her will. Right? This is this is the problem with psychiatric care. Oftentimes, there is a there's a, a way in which we, we push services on people when they are uh, unable to accept it. And that can be really traumatic. So she was essentially a survivor of that. Um, and, and like I was describing, what we needed to do is meet her exactly where she was. You know, whether it be she shows up PS, that's where we go. She's in the community, that's where we go. And instead of focusing in on sort of like, you need to take medication, you need to do this, you know, et cetera. What we needed to do was, Mrs. P, what do you want? And what we realized um, as she was able to sort of participate in this kind of care is that she really needed care of her teeth. Like she was incredibly ashamed of her her teeth in a lot of pain and didn't have access to dental care. And that's what she needed. So we're like, 
we don't care if you are psych, you know, you have um, psychotic symptoms. We're going to help you through the taking care of your teeth, right? She also really wanted us to help her with making sure that her pet was okay. You know, those are important things to her, etc. And she also wanted to make sure that um, we were not judging her for the fact that she was using marijuana. And that was a big thing for her. And so relating with her in that way and not, you know, becoming very paternalistic about, about her was incredibly helpful. After some time, and this took months, right? She was finally able to accept going to a navigation center. A navigation center is a shelter with a lot of services connected, right? And a lot of uh, low threshold medical care. So she started to get some inter- human interactions with that. She started to interact with other teams like the street medicine team. And then she got um, a lot more sort of a sense that, oh, maybe, maybe this is okay. Maybe I can do this, you know? And that's when we started to hear, hear more of her story. You know, she had been in prison, actually had been charged with a very serious felony. She lost her children in the process. She never got contact with her children ever again since then. Um, and she finally was able to say, you know what? In the end, I really want to be housed. I want to do everything I can to get housed. But it took a lot of work to even get to that, you know? So we got her through the coordinated entry process, you know, which is a centralized um, access through the city to get to permanent supportive housing. And she was actually told that she was not prioritized for that. And so we, as this case manager, advocated for that, right? And then because we, we know how to do that, she was then placed on the priority list, you know? And then came the process of getting her documents it's so much work to get documents from people who don't have a DMV or ID card or like, you know, who struggle with those kinds of things. And so even through that process of getting through document ready, we had to go to, to the DMV together, stand in line together, you know, make sure that she was not missing her cues and make sure that she had the right objects to bring. I mean, it's just a stressful for all of us, right? Imagine what it's like to do that when you're hearing voices in your head and having to do that. It's really impossible. But bottom line is we, people need a lot more help than we think. Um, and then this is when actually COVID hit. So this is a story from a while ago, right? Um, and, you know, you know, when COVID hit, we, there was this really interesting thing that happened, which is that the city provided this shelter-in-place uh, housing for people who were more vulnerable to COVID. And this was an incredible opportunity because this is when, you know, a lot of the hotels, the commercial hotels were empty of tourists. And then they essentially allowed the city to utilize it using FEMA funding, right, to house people who were vulnerable to COVID. And she qualified for that. So she suddenly was in a hotel room. This was very disorienting to her and also kind of an interesting new beginning. We had to help her readjust to that and really make sure that she connected to the services on site at the hotel, you know, and, 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 but, you know, she had some traumatic events. Like there was a person next door who busted into her apartment, her hotel room and essentially, uh, you know, really assaulted her and she was ready to leave at that point. And we really had to do everything we could to support her to stay in the hotel. And just to say, this is like, fairly typical no fairly it's a, it happens often enough that there's so much violence in this environment that it's really hard for people to stay who already are fairly traumatized right 
And then there was an opportunity. And so this is interesting also because um, sort of mid-early in the pandemic, Tipping Point found the community, um, started, you know, gave up, supported this this new housing opportunity for san francisco which is called the flexible housing subsidy pool and this is where we try to get housing citywide is one service provider who helps sort of like settle people into these housing so we utilize that to settle miss p um and it, it took a lot of work, right? But it was about, you know, getting the right funds to get her furniture and making sure that she understood how to pay her bills and how to pay her rent, you know, and how to not, um, how to interact well with her neighbors, you know, like just really holding her hand throughout. And we, she's now in that kind of a housing and she is being supported by yet another team of citywide, right? Which is the flexible housing pool. Um, it's a long journey, as you can tell, right? But it's a journey that's absolutely possible. I think to your question as to how do we scale this, I, I agree. It's, it's, it's a big, that's a big problem. That's probably the biggest problem that we need to solve. And I think it has to start with capacity building. We, we just simply don't have enough providers who are able to and willing to do this work. And we need to be in a position, and this might be a great thing for a place like Citywide that's part of an academic institution, is to be a training ground uh, and make sure that existing providers are trained to work, have the right tools, understand the systems, know how to navigate it, you know, are supported internally, you know, to do this work. And also creating pipelines to have new people enter the field, right? Um, but more than anything, it's really preventing po- people uh, from going into this um, and becoming homeless and becoming so uh, unable to sort of manage their lives, right? So, so you mentioned how you know bring the pipeline of the uh, more providers to come into this field. I think it's very rewarding. I'm sure when you see how the work that you uh, impact, Mr. P. And, but at the same time, that's also, this line of work is not an easy choice. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah. How do we sustain? So one, a very, very, like very basic thing is we really need to work on the salaries of our social workers, you know, our, or our entire workforce that provide case management. There was a, you know, I think the San Francisco Controller's Office did a, a kind of an overarching study on looking at, you know, what were the the jobs that really needed to be supported better, and case management came at the very top of that. Um, and so we are not paying our folks sufficiently to do this work because they are paid. Um, you know how I think there was a. Two couple years ago, there was an article that came out that said that you need to make $95,000 a year in order to afford a studio apartment in San Francisco, right? And a lot of the, the salary ranges of my social workers are much lower than that. You know, they start up in the mid-70s. Um, and so we really need to work on that. You know, that is not acceptable. You, a lot of my staff, especially the newer staff um, who, you know, 
really do the bulk of this work are lives very, very far away and really have to commute a long way. And there are so many jobs out there that for social workers and mental health providers, because there's just a dearth of mental health providers, right, um, that would pay a lot better. And so we are just, our retention recruitment efforts are just really, really tough right now. Um, so that's one thing, uh, salaries, that's very basic. I think also creating a sort of work community that is supportive, that really allows folks to um, decompress and talk about what they're, what's hard about it, you know, and, and really kind of get ahead of the moral injury that most of us end up suffering from, uh, from like the lack of hospital beds to the lack of residential beds to all of the things that we try to do so hard to push through the system and feel like it doesn't get answered uh, or it doesn't get answered in the, in the right way. I think that is, that's, that's something that we need to be able to support ourselves and also build enough of a sort of advocacy process in order to move that system forward. You know, having a voice in these problems is really the best way to move, um, to move against moral injury, you know? So that's, that's another one. Um, you know, trauma-informed systems, right? The principle that we understand that uh, the workforce and the clients, that the patients that we work with, struggle through traumatic events and traumatic responses. And so having a gentle uh, organization that's able to sort of like absorb that is super helpful. I mean, I'm just like throwing big principles here, right? But also internally, knowing that we work with clients who are going through so much and maybe very reactive at times, we need to have restorative justice principle in place. We need to understand that um, there is a way of, um, we need to have internal justice, right? You can't just say, yeah. So I think it's, it's basically saying that, well, you know, I think in the traditional healthcare system, we say, you healthcare provider, you need to absorb whatever your patient is bringing. That is your job. But I think that is a little short-sighted. It doesn't take into account how much that leads to burnout, right? And it's very hard to sustain when you are, you know, as a healthcare provider, you're just absorbing things. And so creating an environment where um, a client, for example, who has done something that was assaultive, you know, problematic towards a healthcare provider, has the chance to come back and make amends, you know, in a way that is acceptable for the provider. I think that restorative justice principle, you know, is so important. It's not about saying you're bad and you're, you're good, right? It's about saying okay, people do things that they may not, they shouldn't have done, but that doesn't mean you're out of that. You know, we're not going to exclude you from it. And we're not also going to just accept it. We're just going to have you do the things to make amends, to say, I'm sorry, you know? Um, so creating sort of structures that support that kind of conversation, I think is critical. But it, I think that it's uh, the big task on the, the list that you have. But I think you have to at least uh, recognize it. And then that's when you take action on it, right? Because I think if you don't know what that is, then it's not getting anywhere. I know that we are close to 
I can talk to you a lot longer, but uh, we are close to uh, our time. I want to get one last question that I'm asking a couple of people now that I thought was fun is that what are the things that other people values that you don't? I mean, this is this. I, I, maybe this is because I'm Japanese and French and American. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just say it like that. Um, because I can't settle on anything. Everything that I, I come up with, I can see a counterpoint to it. Um, so I was going to say sim- simplistic black and white thinking. Um, I don't think that necessarily other people value that, but I do think that we tend to fall back on that. Uh, especially when we interface with fear and uncertainty, right? I think that's something that we go to for a level of comfort because uh, it gives us a sense of what is the next thing to do and this is how we're going to tackle it. And usually it's by by sort of pushing away uh, something else. I'm not even going to say somebody else. I think it's something else. And I, I want to say that life is so much more complicated. Everything is really honestly very gray. And we need to grapple with that every day. And that sounds like incredibly inefficient and maybe at at times needs to be put aside. But if we don't have that process running in the background, we are so, um, I think we're, we're liable to making gigantic mistakes. Um, so that, that's, I don't know if that answers the question. Um, I think I'm, I'm describing something that I'm noticing really right now in our social discourse which is about this is good and this is bad. Which side are you on? And that I think we need to really work on that. I think the term is polarization. I've heard that. Um, but it's it's more this simplification. But really, honestly, when we talk with people and we have conversations, we understand where they're coming from. And we need to move less fast and really connect in order to move better and i really hope that that's going to happen and that we we can all start to see that yeah Yeah. i think yeah what to your point is like connecting with people takes time yet the world wants to move faster and i think we're going to i mean we need the connection that's why we are human here and i think that sometimes uh, we need to pause and enjoy each other's presence and connecting. Under, I, I think understanding where people come from, their story, I think we can learn so much from that conversation. And if only people take the time to understand other people. Yeah, yeah. And in that interaction, be really clear on who I am in mm-hmm. that interaction. Because we always bring, I mean, this is coming back to an earlier theme, right? But we always are who we are and bring our, you know, subjectivity, our judgments, our assumptions in that interaction. And so being able to step back a little bit and watch that and then interact and then watch that, you know, and practice that muscle, you know? Yeah. I wish there's a school that can teach you all that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But anyway, yeah. thank you so yeah. much for your time. It's really a, a pleasure for me to have you and 
share your experience and your story uh, to all, all of us here. So thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation and I appreciate you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.